Welcome to Teacher and Zion Podcast, where we embark on a journey of exploration into the depths of faith, philosophy, and our relationship with God. In today's episode, we delve into a topic that has sparked centuries of theological debate, predestination. As we navigate through the scriptures, we'll unravel the complex tapestry of divine sovereignty and human free will examining key passages that have ignited profound discussion among scholars and believers alike. Join us as we seek to answer the age-old question, does the Bible indicate that we are predestined? Get ready for this thought-provoking topic as we explore the mysterious intersection between destiny and choice. Dust in the Wind, what a great song. Well, this particular speck of dust is broadcasting from Independence, Missouri. This is Doug Hatton, Teacher in Zion Podcast. Welcome. Today we're going to talk about a topic which has been discussed many times over the years in my presence uh, among religious people. Are we predestined? And if we're predestined, then doesn't that mean that we have no free will. If everything's already predestined, then it doesn't matter what we do, right? Or we're just running in a program or a simulation and doing our assigned roles. If we are doomed, we've been doomed from the beginning. And if we're going to have victory, well, I guess that was decided before we ever came here. Or was it? And where do we get these ideas from? I'd like to pull together a number of scriptures. I'm not going to make this real long today. I'll make it fairly brief. We could go deeper. But I think if we hit about three or four, maybe five scriptures real quick and put them together, I think we can see a bigger picture. I'm looking forward to talking about this. I don't think it'll take us long to get to the heart of the matter. Uh, but perhaps we could have a larger discussion on it later. Or maybe there's things I hadn't thought of. Please feel free to comment below in the video and we can always have a discussion in the future. Maybe someone else come on to the show. Uh, that would be great. Okay, let's, uh, let's look into this. Now, I think the first thing we have to do to establish whether we truly have free will or whether we are predestined is to take a look at the nature of God in relation to man and good and evil. And I think you'll see in a minute why I want to start here. But the first question I want to answer is, did God create evil? And we want to look at that question because it's related to another concept found in the Bible that we will need to examine. So 
We might reason that if God created all things, then evil must have been created by God. And in fact, we do find a single verse in the Bible that appears to say this. In Isaiah 45, 7, it states, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, when I first sat down to read the Bible, and not just read it, but study it from beginning to end, there were a handful of passages through the Bible that definitely raised some questions or um, caused me to struggle a bit. And I remember that this verse was one of them. I really grappled with it trying to understand the nature of God as I understood it from other scriptures. But in looking at that question, I think we also need to look at the nature of the Bible itself. And I believe it is important that we understand that the written word in our scriptures is just like Jesus himself. He was the word made flesh. And there are many people who have difficulty fully understanding or embracing this truth that Jesus was both fully human, and also fully divine. We know that he was a baby, and he probably cried, and he laughed. The scriptures indicate that he grew in his understanding, and he would not be ready for his ministry until he was 30 years of age. Just like the rest of us humans, he had to develop, he had to learn, and he had to grow. He worked, he got tired, he perspired. He ate food and, you know, he also pooped. He was fully man and yet he was also fully divine. He was God. For God had come down and taken on a body of flesh to walk the earth and show us the way and pay the penalty for our sin. And similarly, the Bible is also both divine, but it is also human. The human part comes from the fact that the scriptures were written by fallible men, men who did their best to dictate or write down what they understood to have received from God. The reality is that the Bible did not fall from heaven one day. The scriptures were developed and edited over time, and many of the books of the Bible were copied and compiled from other older documents and books, many passages in the Bible itself indicate this, as they refer to those other books and scrolls from which they obtain that information. The reality that much of Christianity doesn't want to embrace is that anything that has passed through the mind of men, heavenly concepts that had to be articulated and put into human language, is going to have certain imperfections or the potential for error. But that does not take away from the importance or the divine nature of the Bible any more than being fully man took away from the divine nature of Christ. If someone argues that the Bible is not infallible, I would agree. But I also would argue that it is reliable. And I say that because God himself gave us the antidote for any potential issue. For he tells us in multiple places in the scripture that his word, his truth, would be established in the mouth of multiple 
witnesses. In other words, God has promised us that he will repeat important truths and doctrines. It is for this reason that we should be careful anytime someone attempts to establish some new doctrine or push a new idea that is based essentially on a single passage of scripture. When you read all of the scriptures, the truth will emerge and those things that are most important for us to know, God has seen fit to firmly establish in the mouth of two or three or four or even more witnesses throughout the passages of the scriptures. Isaiah is here translated into English as saying that God created evil. But what is truly intended here? Did God actually create evil? Or did he create the opportunity for people to choose evil? I think our first clue comes from the passage itself. The statement here begins with the idea that God created light and darkness. But scientifically speaking, we know that darkness is not actually a thing in and of itself, but rather it is simply the absence of light. And if you recall, before God ever said in Genesis, let there be light, the Bible said darkness was on the face of the deep. So before God created anything, there was darkness because darkness is simply the absence of light. And so when it says that God created light and he created darkness, I believe what it's saying is that by creating light, he also created the opposite or the lack of light became in itself something that we would define as darkness in the same way. Evil is not a thing like a rock or electricity. You cannot have a jar of evil. Evil has no existence of its own. It is simply the absence of good. For example, holes are real, but they only exist in something else. We call the absence of dirt a hole in the ground but it cannot be separated from the dirt. So when God created, it is true that all he created was good. One of the good things God made was creatures who had the freedom to choose good. So God gave angels and humans the freedom to choose good or reject good, which is what we came to know as evil. Evil is rejecting what is good. Now, the reason why I needed to first discuss Isaiah 45, 7 is because of Romans 9, 21 through 23, which is often cited to demonstrate God's sovereign choice in creating some people for eternal destruction so that he might demonstrate his wrath while making other people to be recipients of eternal mercy. And for many years, when I read this passage, I also thought it was saying that God created some people to be vessels of wrath that were essentially destined for destruction, which thing didn't really make sense to me if God is a just God and if he is merciful. That idea really changes the nature of who God is. And it kind of throws out that God doesn't make junk saying that people have but let's take a closer look at the passage. So in Romans 9, 21 through 23, we read, Hath not the potter power over the clay 
of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath that are fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Now, it's certainly understandable when you're looking here at how the potter has power over the clay to make one lump a vessel of honor, another a vessel of dishonor, that this has the appearance of God literally creating some men to be evil and others to be good. We'll come back to that. In particular, at the end of this passage, it does speak about making known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he afore prepared unto glory. Now pin that for just a moment, and we're going to come back to that. It is important to look at the preceding verses and illustrations about Esau and Pharaoh to get the proper context here. These previous verses do not actually deal with individual salvation or questions about the origin of evil, and neither do these verses that I quoted. Paul's discourse here is about God's dealings with Pharaoh, and the emphasis here is upon God's patience toward evil and rebellious sinners. God's delay in exercising his wrath is not because of his inability or his unwillingness, as it might seem to some, but rather to make his power known. That's the context of this verse, and it is the true meaning behind it. Between the sixth and the seventh plagues in Egypt, God told Pharaoh through Moses that he could have already obliterated Pharaoh and his people. This is found in Exodus 9.15. And then in Exodus 9.16, God tells him why he has not done so. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all of the earth. And this is actually the verse that's being quoted in Romans 9.17. So I don't believe that Paul is actually making an argument here that some people were created to be vessels of wrath, but rather through agency, some have chosen a course that makes them a vessel of wrath, and that God is long-suffering in delaying the punishment that he may show forth his glory and show those who are approved and those who are not. You know, we're told that God is no respecter of persons, but for centuries the Israelites believed that they were created by God to be his people and that the Gentiles were not. The Israelites were loved by God and he would save them, but Gentiles were essentially damned. And so they got it in their head that because they were born an Israelite, this automatically gave them favor. But when Peter has his vision at Joppa, and then saw that the Holy Ghost was poured out on the Gentiles, in Acts 10.34 it reads, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. In some renderings, it uses the word favoritism. God is not one to show favoritism. And so as I think about that, if God had created the Gentiles 
to be born as Gentiles and had created the Israelites to be born as Israelites. And by this virtue alone, some would be born as chosen people of the Lord, while others would be vessels of wrath. Then God is most certainly showing partiality and favoritism. But what does it say of God? That he is just and merciful. And in Hebrews 11.6 it says, He who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Not those who were lucky enough to be born in a certain family. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and all things therein. And he said, it is good. It was not until Adam and Eve sinned that there was an issue. Adam and Eve were not born as vessels of wrath merely because they fell, but it was because of their choices that they suffered. Ezekiel 28.15 says that even Satan was perfect in the day that God made him until iniquity was found in him. That iniquity was the result of his own choices. But what about Romans 8.29? Now we come to the fun stuff. And this is probably the last main scripture we'll look at. And it reads, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now this definitely seems to be speaking of predestination, though we need to keep in mind that this is specifically speaking of Jesus here. But let's also expand out and show some of the surrounding verses to get some further context. And I think it becomes even more intriguing. So in Romans 8, we'll start in verse 28 and go through 30. And for an even greater context, if you read the whole chapter, but it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Well, there's a choice. You literally have to have free will, agency to choose to love God. And so there is a role that we have to play in this. Again, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. There's that word, predestined. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. A fascinating scripture, and one that I love to meditate upon. But built right into it is the idea of predestination. But does that mean that God created certain people in the beginning, when he first made them and conceived of them, to be ones who would be his chosen people and others to not be chosen, for others to be damned. Is that typical of the nature of God? And if we don't think that is the nature of God to do that, then what does the scripture mean by being predestined? Well, the predestination is tied into another word here, foreknew. Those whom he foreknew he also 
predestined. Now, now let's think about that. First of all, we have to go back to the rule that anytime we find something written in the Bible or any scriptures, we got to look for other witnesses to it. Now, this letter is written by Paul and another scripture that seemed to be talking about the idea of Pharaoh being a vessel of wrath, also written by Paul. That's one witness. So that alone makes it a bit of a problem if we want to stand on these scriptures as our foundation. Remember, Christ alone is our foundation, not Paul and his understanding. But Paul is trying to illustrate something here, and I don't think there's anything wrong with what he's saying. I believe what he's saying is a mystery. And I also believe there is a lot to learn from it, so long as we don't misunderstand or misconstrue what he's saying. So let us consider the predestination part. If this predestination he is speaking of is referring to how we were actually created by God, in other words, we were destined from the very beginning to be this way, then does that not mean that we do not have agency? Then that we do not have free will? Well, we know from the scriptures that God did give agency to man and that it is for us to choose right or wrong from the very beginning. Each of us has a choice. So how are we to understand predestination? Well, again, I do believe the clue is right within the verses itself for those whom he foreknew. Now, here's the thing about God. God lives in the midst of eternity and eternity is outside of the parameters of time. For God, there is no past, present, and future, but all things are before his face. He sees all things, past, present, and future, all at once, and he knows all things, even before he ever made us, before he ever conceived of us spiritually. He already knew everything that we would do, everything that we would choose, all the mistakes, all the pain that we would go through. He knew everything about us and how things would end up. And for a lot of people, that means that we do not have agency or free will. But you know, the Spirit showed me something years ago to help me understand how this works. Now imagine there is a river winding through a valley. And in this river, there are waterfalls, rocks, rapids, twists and turns, places where it is shallow, places where it is deeper, places where there are eddies and currents. And far above this river is a man in a helicopter looking down at the course of the river, and he can see everything that is ahead and behind a person who is going down that river in a canoe. And because this man who is in the helicopter from his perspective can see what lies ahead for the man in the canoe. Does this mean that he has taken agency or free will away from the man in the canoe? And of course the answer is no. And this is a little bit what it is like for God. For if the river symbolizes time, God can see everything in the past, everything in the future. It is all present to him. He has already foreseen it. And if he has foreseen it, then he has already foreknown us. Remember? Those whom he foreknew? How can he foreknow us before we were ever born? How could he foreknow us before we did anything? How would he know what we would choose 
except that he knows all things already. And this in no way eradicates or takes away from our free will and our agency. If you invented a time machine and you went forward 10 years in the future and you saw what your friend had done and where he ended up, would this take away his agency and his free will choice? No. Just because you skipped ahead and saw what he would choose doesn't negate the fact that he still chose it. And so we can finally come to an understanding by examining the very nature of God and how he is not bound by time and how there is no past or future for him, which is why it says of Christ that he was crucified from the foundation of the earth and that God has no beginning and no end because he's outside of time. And so from his perspective, we are predestined because of our choices, because he already knows those who will choose him, and he already knows those who will reject him. And so we come to the truth of this scripture, knowing that God causes all things to work together for the good of who? Those who love and choose God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so why are we called? because he's already foreseen that we would answer that call, as it goes on to state. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. He foreknew us, having seen all things that would transpire, having already foreknown the choices that we would make, he knows who are his. And so in that we are predestined to conform to the image of his Son, in that knowing of who we are and what we will choose, he will work with us to bring to pass those things that need to transpire in our lives so that we can fulfill that destiny of ours. Amen. And if I haven't completely offended you yet, I hope you will join us next time. And until then, God bless.